2: Keith Thipps is at home listening to his 78s, but he'll return for the next pairing. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two coming-of-age films set in the early aughts about creatively-minded outcasts who are leaving high school and uncertain about what the future holds for them. One of them is a semi-autobiographical period piece about a Catholic schoolgirl from Sacramento. The other is a contemporaneous film that she probably would have liked a lot. Genevieve, tell us more.
1: This week, we're firing up our Netscape browsers, popping a Dave Matthews CD single into the Sony Discman, and revisiting the early 2000s with two coming-of-age comedies about misfit seniors who are trying to find a place for themselves in a world they felt comfortable rejecting. In Ghost World, Terry Zwigoff's adaptation of Daniel Klaus's graphic novel, or Neuroglyphic Picto Assemblage, as he calls it, Thora Birch plays Enid, a sardonic teenager who knows what she hates but doesn't know what she wants. In Greta Gerwig's Ladybird, Shersha Ronan plays Christine Ladybird McPherson, a sardonic teenager who knows what she wants to go to college as far away from Sacramento as possible, but isn't sure how to get there.
2: To quote Ione Skye's valedictorian address and say anything quote, I've glimpsed our future, and all I can say is go back. But that's a third senior year comedy, and we're sticking with two this week. On the first of this week's episodes, we'll look at Ghost World and what it's like to be a young nonconformist in a consumerist hellscape then later in the week we'll bring in lady bird about the perils and uncertainties of growing up on the wrong side of the tracks we'll be back after the break
1: sometimes i think i might be going crazy from sexual frustration you just hate every single guy in the face of the earth that's not true i just hate all these extroverted pseudo-bohemian losers you guys up for some reggae tonight
2: Do you have any other old
0: records besides these? Seymour does. Who does?
2: Oh, uh, him. He's the man with the records. Oh, what, are we in slow
0: motion here? Come on, what are you,
1: hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? I'm allowed to place one student from your graduating class for a full one-year scholarship, and I took the liberty of submitting your name. This could be a really great thing for you. When I have to take classes and stuff?
2: <laughs> well I'm just not the kind of guy who has
0: a type.
1: Every guy has a type. What about her? Whoa. Would you go out with her? As long
0: as she's breathing.
1: Hey! Hey! You! How many times I tell you, no
2: check, no service! Get the hell out of my store! What do you think this is? Club med? It's America, dude. Learn the rules. Loosen up. Yeah. Feel the music.
0: Ghost World, the underground comic book comes to life.
2: We have to get together this summer. Yeah, that'll definitely happen.
0: Written by Daniel Klaus and Terry Zweigoth. Directed by Terry Zweigoth. Do you serve beer
1: any alcohol? After about five minutes of this movie, you're going to wish you had ten beers.
2: The opening credit sequence of Ghost World is built around an ecstatic performance clip from a Bollywood musical called Gumnam from 1965. You're not going to find a copy of Gunnam at Masterpiece Video, the blockbuster-like video store chain where a clerk is stymied by a request for Fellini's Eight and a Half. You have to acquire it through some underground bootleg circuit, likely a third-generation dub that's been circulated among Bollywood enthusiasts. But Enid, the film's heroine, has found herself a copy, and she knows the clip well enough that she dances along without looking. This is a rare moment of unfettered enthusiasm and joy for a teenager who spends most of the time offering a sour running commentary on a world she detests. For Terry Zweigoff, the director, to open on such an atypical scene out of Enid's life is an unexpected but brilliant choice, because we know from the start that Enid isn't a misanthrope by rote, but an enthusiast and a connoisseur who's perpetually disappointed by the banality that surrounds her. She uses sarcasm as a shield against conformity, hypocrisy, and idiocy, but it also isolates her among her peers and makes it difficult for her to find happiness. Her best friend Rebecca, played by Scarlett Johansson, echoes her contempt, but doesn't seem to share her love of the esoteric or her aversion to convention. Rebecca is growing out of her cynicism and growing away from Enid. And yet the film doesn't mistake that for actual growth. Ghost World isn't about Enid adjusting her attitude and learning to be a kinder, more forgiving, more responsible adult. Ghost World is about Enid understanding that the road she's chosen will likely be a lonely and painful one, full of frustration and compromise, and only occasionally leavened by transcendent beauty, like that Bollywood clip, or the Skip James song, Devil Got My Woman. Her friendship with Seymour, a dorky record collector played by Steve Buscemi, is like a visit from the ghost of Enid's future. They meet when Enid and Rebecca cruelly respond to a misconnections ad in the classifieds, and watch this pitiful man drinking a vanilla milkshake at a faux 50s diner called Wowsville as his date doesn't show. Enid feels remorse about setting him up, but she's astonished to see how easily he takes it in stride, as if this sort of thing happens to him all the time. When she gets to know him better later, she's surprised to find that, quote, he's the exact opposite of everything I really hate, end quote, which is as close as Enid gets to liking something. In many respects, Seymour affirms the validity of Enid's worldview, they have a similar love for the esoteric. They hate hypocrisy and the blight of consumer culture. They both joke bitterly about the things that frustrate them. But there's a key exchange that happens late in the film when Edith shares her number one fantasy with Seymour. She says, quote, I used to think about one day just not telling anyone and going off to some random place, and I'd just disappear and they'd never see me again. Did you ever think about stuff like that? And Seymour responds, I guess I probably did when I was your age. If there's a shred of hope for Enid in Ghost World, it's that she pursues her fantasy and doesn't wind up like Seymour, clocking into the same dreary corporate job for 19 years and coming home to nurse weird obsessions that he cannot share with anyone. She might still be him someday, but she's going to strike out on her own path to find out.
1: You should check out the personals if your future husband are trying to contact us. Here we go. Windsurfing doctor, men's in IQ, maverick Sagittarius. Let's hit the clubs, make each other laugh. You can have that one. Oh, Jesus. Listen to this one. Do you remember me? Airport shuttle, June 7th. You, striking blonde with yellow dress, pearl necklace, brown shoes. I was the bookish fellow in the green cardigan who helped you find your contact lens. Am I crazy or did we have a moment? Oh, that's so pathetic. I mean... She probably didn't even notice him. I know, and he's like psychotically obsessing over every little detail. We should call him and pretend to be the blonde. Oh, we totally have to.
2: So, incredibly, this film has been out for 16 years, Ghost World, which just ages me horribly. Uh, but I'm curious what your history is with the film, and have the times changed or what? <laughs>
0: You know, I I don't know that the times have changed all that much. Maybe they've changed since this film was made. But one of the things that kind of surprised me revisiting it is how many of these elements still feel the same because there's so much about nostalgia and about being outside of the world. I mean, the whole garage sale scene where a bunch of kind of sad, obsessive collectors are are sort of uh, uncomfortably clinging to the detritus of their collections and selling them to each other. The 50s diner that is not particularly 50s but it's kind of married to a very fake nostalgia like those things have
1: not changed over 16 years at all that is true I have changed in the 16 years since I've (laughs) since I've seen this this movie and I was uh, I mean I graduated high school in 2001 and saw this movie shortly thereafter my freshman year of, of college probably and at that point I honestly didn't connect to it that much I think just because these were not characters very much like me to be frank and that was kind of the lens i was watching it through at that time because of the the closeness to my experience at least superficially so i i kind of had like a graduate experience to throw back to our our last discussion watching this again in that i was sympathizing with the adult characters Mm -hmm. this time around steve buscemi's character in particular and i also the thing that's changed is i have since that first viewing read ghost world uh, reread it just before this and uh, I think because now that I am familiar with the source material and can like see the ways that it was changed by Klaus himself who, who co-wrote this that even though I like this movie a lot and I, I really do like Buscemi in it and his storyline there is a part of me that is mourning the fact that this is not really the teen girl friendship story that it seems like it, it might be like there it's much more Enid's story than the story of Enid and Becky And that's a really good story. And Enid is an amazing protagonist and super fun. And I love Thor Birch's performance of her. But I did kind of have a feeling watching it like I I would like to see a slightly different version of, of this movie that is more about Enid and Becky than about Enid and Seymour.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any experience with the graphic novel. I'll just call it a graphic novel so I'm not going with his. his <laughs> I, think, I think he'd weird... prefer you call it a comic over a graphic okay, novel. Okay, <laughs> I have no experience with the comic, so I, I don't really mourn what, what I don't know yeah. is there. And I will say, I think it's actually an effective tactic on the film's part to keep Rebecca out of the action for a long stretches of time because you do get that sense just naturally that they're growing apart just Mm -hmm. by simply not sharing the screen together and i would just miss i just love the seymour character so much Uh, one of the weird things that's changed for me having watched the film is that you know when i was at the av club i did a tour for my this column i wrote called new cult canon around bad santa where i went to three different cities with terry zweigoff and terry zweigoff is Seymour? I mean, it's yeah. it's it, it, you are when you talk to him, you are. Ta- it's a weird feeling of actually talking to a movie character because his obsessions, his personality, his sense of humor, you know, his kind of like seventy eight collection, his seventy eight collection, his <laughs> just and and just like kind of like he's big hearted under all of that sort of. You know, cynicism and crustiness <laughs> like that is whole completely. Terry's Wygoff putting himself in the movie, and I think in a fairly meaningful way. And I guess we'll get into that. But uh, I actually did think it there. I was amazed by how distant the world of two thousand one looked <laughs> uh, from it, what it is now. I mean, again, you know, I mean, any movie where the internet really doesn't play a role feels pretty
1: far away at this point. Is the uh, customer at the coffee shop who is looking up the answer to the trivia question, was he doing that using the internet? I don't think he could have been, right? Because no. wireless wasn't a thing. So was he just using like Encyclopedia Britannica CD-ROM or something? I think so. <laughs> okay. I was no, thinking that too. That's an interesting point.
0: I
2: was thinking that too. <laughs>
0: I guess I assumed, it's It's funny, uh, like I noticed how like old and and clumsy his laptop looked compared to what we have today, but I didn't really think about the fact that he's
1: probably not on the coffee shop's Wi-Fi. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: No. That's... <laughs>
1: It is it is a very Garish and somewhat heightened version of 2001 that is, is obviously linked to the protagonist's like perception of the world. Like the version of contemporary music we get in this movie is just hilariously like ear searing, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like you know <laughs> versions of what what we were hearing at that time. And there's but, but jerkwads in coffee shops, pretentious jerkwads in coffee shops <laughs> hasn't changed at all. No, <laughs> but now they keep their music in their earbuds. <laughs> <laughs> some of them do.
2: I think that was just a matter of them not having the money to <laughs> go after the songs that he really no wanted it, to it very after. much
1: was the first scene at wowsville uh Zweigoff wanted the song that's playing when she goes like oh i love this famous 50s song uh he wanted that to be britney spears oops i did it again ah. but could never afford it
2: yeah and that and that and that's not necessarily the context that a uh, artist would want their song yeah. anyway it's like this horrible soulless uh mm-hmm. music of the of the day
0: i mean i I liked the the incredibly jarring and to some degree unmemorable song that we got instead, yeah. as opposed to it being something like so tied to a modern time, like it just feels like a very like random low rent choice in a way that's I think really perfect for what they're saying in that scene.
2: So I'm curious to ask you about the look of the film, and maybe Jennifer can speak to this since she's <laughs> fresh off the comic book. But um, you know, as and the director of photography, Alfonso Bito wanted the film to both reflect sort of the Clouds aesthetic and also reject the storyboarded look of other comic book movies like Dick Tracy. I was Mm. curious what you thought they, you thought they succeeded in doing that and how you would actually describe the visual style of ghost
0: world.
1: I mean, I think you just need to look at that opening sequence, like the pan over the windows of the apartment building. Like, I mean, those are panels. Those are panels of a comic book where you are getting little tableaus that are setting the scene. And just the throughout the movie, there's lots of images that could be described as panels. You know, they are composed and static in their way, but dynamic as well, the way that comics illustrations can be. There's also,
0: a, the one that strikes me most is the the shot that you see of the flattened pants on the sidewalk. Mm like that is very much a comic panel and then you kind of you don't pan back to where the characters are walking but they comment on it in advance and then they move several spaces forward into that panel where the the pants are and that whole thing just i mean it it reminded me almost of an alan moore comic in its kind of jumping forward in time to see what we're about to see and then like using that to link what they're saying with what they're doing There are also just there are a lot of very boxy spaces in this the garage sale kind of reminded me me of that yeah. because it's a series of garages with the doors all pulled up, yeah, and an empty space inside. But you get the sense of like little boxy frames that each seller is standing in.
2: That's true. And then of course there are other strategies that the film employs as well, with just making it feel like a, a comic book by having episodic little stories that mm-hmm. begin and end, you know, within maybe the space of what would be a page. I mean, like following the Satanists around, <laughs> or or so um, you would call
1: an arc. The comic. an arc see I don't I am such a, a dumb dumb on
2: comics so uh, I'm glad that we have some expertise here
0: mm. I mean in a in a different kind of movie those arcs those mini arcs would be labeled like they are in Meyerowitz stories for instance I mean you would have something like following the Satanists or yeah. a tragic date or whatever because they they do feel like little episodic stories and if they were doing that very literal kind of comics feel that was that is probably one of the ways they'd approach it but here one of the things that also feels kind of graphic novelty to me, not necessarily Ghost World in particular, but just feels like something you would get in a comic, is the use of spot color. It's mm. it's not a, an immensely visually vibrant movie, mm-hmm. but there are often like one person will be wearing a bright wet red sweater that just pops off the screen, one person will be wearing something that's vividly green or yellow or blue or what have you. And I mean it comes across as like a sort of a duotone thing. Okay. There's the rest of the world, and then there's like this one article of clothing or this one item. Him in the room that just really pulls
1: your focus, which actually is very applicable to Ghost World, which is a duo-tone com- comic book. You know, it's not it's not four color. I I'd never thought of that, but that is a really cool observation. <laughs>
2: there was a bit in the commentary for this where. is talking about this cardigan that seymour is wearing at wilesville and it's like a much brighter green than he would ever like he would never (laughs) of course he would wear cardigans you know all day but nothing quite so visually bold as (laughs) as that color green
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, Enid is so often the source of, you know, that pop of color, whether it's her hair or her her bright red dress at the end, or I love the styling of Enid's character and how she looks a little different in every single scene. And that is also taken from the Ghost World comic. Um, It's actually much more drastic uh, there in terms of how Enid shifts her look from almost page to page but in terms of expressing that in bold, dynamic four colors, as opposed to the the duotone of the comic, it's fun to see that aspect of the character turned cinematic. Yeah,
0: the the green hair in particular, Mm -hmm, during mm -hmm. that very short sequence where she's got green hair. And that is such a telling and interesting sequence, because she comes across as such an iconoclast, like somebody who doesn't like the world because it, it just doesn't get it. But she makes her choices based on the degree to which the world doesn't get it in a way that it's just it's such an interesting character choice because in so many movies that character would be like screw you i have beautiful green hair now and it really is attractive but all it takes is a few people like dissing her look and she goes home and changes it
2: but it's interesting that that, that green hair works on two levels too because i think she she does it out of rebellion against her friend and, yeah. and what her friend wants and, and just the whole you know, Look normalization of for, looking uh, respectable to get an apartment. Like now, you, now she got green hair; they can't get an apartment. Uh, so there's that part of it too. And and then the other is just trying to advance this retro look that she's called out on. Yeah. And so for both of those, I, I think for that, punk. that's the reason that she changes to her back more so than I think Rebecca being upset that she turned, yeah. her, oh, angry, certainly. which is a very deliberate thing for her to do.
0: I don't mean Rebecca being upset about her changing it. I mean, just that sense when she's like, everyone's too stupid to get it. It's like, <laughs> she's trying to define herself by like a very narrow specific thing. And the fact that people don't recognize it, like is a problem which, I mean, it seems to me, like, if, if you're happy with that look, why wouldn't you keep that look? But for her, it seems like it's meant to be a mark of recognition. It's meant to be a badge of a very specific honor.
1: And she's really pissed that people aren't getting the reference. Well, and also, I mean, she she is, as we've said, an iconoclast. But she's one who hasn't, like, quite figured out in what way she is an iconoclast. Like, we know she's artistic, but she hasn't really devoted herself to to her art you know she doesn't identify as an artist yet you know she has punk sensibilities but she isn't like she tries on punk but she's not quite there like she's we see her trying on these different amplifications of a personality that she is still like trying to coalesce into the adult enid it's also it's a little
0: fascinating that she's she's super into this one specific punk moment as it exists in her head she's not interested in the music She's no. not interested in the politics. She's not interested in the social scene. But she's really mad that people that she's hanging out with who are also not in any way anyway, part of that world don't get her super, super specific idea.
2: Oh, I, I would push back. She's interested in the music. I mean, she is playing Buzzcocks yeah. in that one sequence, uh, What Do I Get?, which is, which would have been in that era of punk. Such S- a great song. Such an
1: obvious I know. <laughs>
2: I know come on singles going steady you could have gone it could have gone different kind of tension why not draw from that but um, she's
1: not in the
0: scene of the music i mean she's also into a like obscure bollywood and yeah. this like but these th- are advanced
2: studies this is, this is advanced studies in all of this stuff which which, <laughs> I, which I which i really love about her uh, that she's so precocious and has gotten so deep into esoterica so early in her life i really i love her for that
0: well i i mean for me it's just like whenever you actually see her Enjoying something, let and letting herself enjoy it. It's such a a lightening of the mood in the movie. It's such a relief. Like when she finds that one track on the uh, the album that Bashemi s- sold her, and you <laughs> god it gets me a little emotional that sequence where she's just finished dying her hair Mm -hmm. and the song comes on and she stops what she's doing and the camera just explores her and then it finds her lying down still listening to it and then she just gets up and puts it on again that's there's no words and it's one of the the greatest sequences in this movie because it's one of the greatest feelings in that movie that feeling of recognition when you first experience some art that hits you
2: yeah it's soul stirring and it's also private in a way it's specific i mean like there's a degree to which Enid and, and certainly Seymour are condemned by the life that they've chosen for themselves and the interests that they have and how weird and, you know, he's having a party of record collectors and it's really kind of sad.
1: And David Cross. And David Cross. <laughs> and David Cross. <laughs> well, okay. He's got, all, he's
2: got all the moves. But then, but then it's, it's, that's all kind of weird. But they also have something special, which is that they have found something that is uniquely theirs that few people share that isn't part of the monoculture and uh, that speaks to them in, in a very deep, soul-stirring way that maybe um, other people don't have that kind of experience with pop culture.
0: I want to get to that thought in a second, but first got to say, you, you talk about things that have dated in an interesting way <laughs> <laughs> over the past 16 years. That scene with David Cross really plays differently in our current cultural moment mm-hmm. around sexual harassment and sexual pickup. God, he, I mean, he goes straight to like come home and see my etchings, more or less. No, No,
1: for, first he compliments her green dress and asks if she's irish (laughs) does that even
0: qualify as a pickup line my god but yeah it's uh watch and learn it's pretty slimy but as far as the experience of sharing art with someone i one of the things i think is really interesting about kind of that the whole buildup of her connection with seymour is that feeling that they're they're really just not quite in sync And yet it's like they recognize the type in each other more than anything else. Like she comes back to him because she wants to have the shared experience of like, you feel about this song the way I do. I think it's really interesting that she doesn't try to play it for Rebecca or get Rebecca into it or even try to tell Rebecca as far as we know, like what her experience was like. But she goes back to him because she thinks he'll understand. And he's he's a little dismissive about it. Eh, yeah, that that song's fine. But, you know, these other songs are way better. And it's just this kind of mismatch that keeps happening between them where she thinks that he's there for her and the things that she loves and he kind of hopes that vice versa. And it just it never quite lines up.
2: Why don't we dig into that now? Because I want to get into the major relationships in the film, including Enid and Rebecca. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, the fact that she doesn't, share the stuff with Rebecca. I don't think she... I think she understands that Rebecca's not interested in that
1: sort of oh, thing. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, um, well, but, also, also like, their whole relationship, it's it's not about bonding over things they like. It's about bonding over things they don't like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know, in, in a way that I found, like, very familiar to a certain type of teen friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do kind of have that, you know, everything about the world sucks attitude. And when you find someone who like agrees with you on all the ways the world sucks that can be a a bond but you know that's maybe not as lasting a bond as uh, something based in something more
0: positive. (laughs) Well, especially when it becomes just like that very unbalanced relationship where it's okay to diss everything, but it's not okay to like anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you you get your joy in life from liking things. And if you can't share that with anybody because you have a relationship in your life that's about hating things, that's, I don't know, I think about some of my high school relationships (laughs) and how much they were predicated on, you know, disliking high school and the teachers and the other students and how that kind of the clickiness of high school often revolves around that. That everybody but us doesn't get it. But then you, you see something in the world that you like and you can't actually... You're not allowed to experience that publicly. I think a lot of high school is about not wanting to get... I want to take that back. I think in my day, a lot of high school was about not wanting to give away what you cared about because it might be used against mm. you. I don't know what it's like these days.
2: Probably twas ever so on that front, I would think.
0: I don't know. TV these days and uh, the 21 Jump Street movie <laughs> tells me that everybody's different these days. Okay. and It's okay to be, to be super into stuff that's awesome.
2: Teenagers. Give us a call. Yeah, teenagers. The, uh, all
0: of the the many hipster fifteen year olds who are listening to this, let us know what it's like in your high school. That's yeah.
2: true. The people of you those of you who hate everything and don't listen. Uh, <laughs> so I want to ask you this, Jennedy, because you again have just read or reread this yes. comic. What is Rebecca? She has a more prominent role in the, the clouds, like yeah. Who is how is she defined there? Well, how she worked into the film.
1: She's the one who is like kind of hanging on to their relationship much more in the comic. The whole them getting apartment together thing that is specific to the movie and the comic. Enid is actually planning to go to college, and that is kind of what they, what is there is creating a rift in their friendship and. Uh, Rebecca wants to or suggests at one point like following Enid to college and you know continuing their friendship and so it's more about exploring that ending of an adolescent friendship as you move into adulthood through kind of a slightly different character dynamic than it is here in the film they just Rebecca's doing her own thing and Enid is doing her own thing and they're just going different paths it's there's a little more Activeness to Enid breaking away in the comic.
0: I haven't read the comic since the movie came out more Mm -hmm. or less, but I did go and look at what's it's online. I take this to be the original script. And in that, uh, Rebecca's is not only a more active character, in a lot of ways her maturity arc is more sharply defined mm-hmm. um, and her resentment of Enid is a lot stronger yeah. like a, what what stands out more than anything else is in the, the scene that she has with Seymour towards the end of the movie, she goes on a rage about it, about the fact that uh, Enid stood her up, she calls her names she like yells at Seymour and when she tells him about the art book and shows it to him, it's very clearly a oh screw you guys, I'm going to destroy you now because I think you deserve it. And then in the end, she ends up very visibly with Josh and very happily with Josh. I'm curious whether any of that's reflected in the graphic novel.
1: I mean, Josh is definitely a much more pivotal character in terms of his relationship to Enid and Rebecca and how they relate to each other in the comic than than he is here. Like there's more of a kind of love triangle happening in, in, in the comic that would engender that kind of behavior. Like Josh is a, Josh is an interesting uh, presence in in this movie, and like they like they talk about him as like he might be a potential romantic interest, and like oh he likes you more, you know, and that's all taken straight from the book. But like there's really no sense that he is a, like a romantic object for either of them. It's so much as just like the guy that they hang around with who can drive them places, which I like. I like I, I like that is a character type in this scenario.
2: It's very funny though. Brad Renfro is a very unsettling person to watch <laughs> on screen as uh, uh, funny as he is in, the, in this movie.
0: He's also, he's just a little bit of a moral voice. It's funny that their their Jiminy Cricket is not strong enough or loud enough to have any impact on them whatsoever, but he's the one who's const- kind of constantly sort of in the background going, this is really mean. You guys <laughs> shouldn't do this. Like, why, why are you doing this to people?
1: Yeah, but when I said earlier that when I saw this in 2001, 2002, and like, I, I kind of had trouble connecting to it just because I didn't really feel a connection to those characters like i was josh i was josh <laughs> when i was that age for sure so maybe that's why <laughs> hey guys knock off all that mean
2: driving driving your mean friends yep, around so yep. they could do things uh, do horrible things The put
1: upon enabler
2: uh i, I like the way Rebecca is handled in the, the film version again I, I don't have anything to compare it with but i i just think of that scene when rebecca shows her the apartment it is really enthusiastic about the ironing board <laughs> was oh, a, a great moment!
1: When I, when I watched that this time with my roommates, I actually said, "I would love it if we had a fold-down ironing board, you guys." <laughs> I don't yeah. know that ironing board uh, at full
0: extension; it didn't. It doesn't have a pop-out leg, so it's just like <laughs> trending downward at a rather sharper yeah. than forty-five degree angle. And all I can think about is how you'd be ironing like downward all the time. That, that looks like a great apartment, by the way. I yeah. don't know I don't know why it's not Well, down. And, and also,
1: so this is a little nitpicky, but you know, if I can't be nitpicky here, where where can I be? Like. The point where Rebecca has signed for the apartment and Enid comes back like, yeah, maybe I will move in with you. Does that mean that Rebecca like signed a lease on a two bedroom apartment with just herself? Like, where <laughs> where did the extra living space come from to accommodate Enid after the fact?
2: That is nitpicky.
1: <laughs> Can you tell I've been on an apartment hunt in the last few years? <laughs>
0: that
2: is very. Uh...
0: Maybe it's having just seen uh, Lady Ladybird, but I like in the back of my head like she is hanging out with like specifically the girl that keeps coming around that's like hey we yeah. should hang out like every single time I watch this movie I expect her to come out of the back room and be <laughs> like hey we got an apartment together you can come over and hang out yeah. like it's just that feeling of like that's again however a, a conventional version of the yeah. story yeah, would go. Yeah
1: that go.
2: would be a much neater version Funky. Yeah. Funky. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that's my maybe my favorite Scarlett Johansson moment in the movie
0: Although Funky. then there's it's like immediately followed by that what, a, what does she think she's black now and there are, there are a couple of <laughs> lines in this movie that just for me land with a oh my god they, they thought that was okay including uh, hey he'd better watch out or he'll get AIDS when he date rapes her <laughs> which is just yeah. launching the movie in the harshest way imaginable like I think these guys are supposed to be sort of lovable curmudgeons or like lovable misanthropes but there's some stuff that they say that is just like unacceptable I've, I've got like two points about that
2: one is that Zweig obviously has a, a long history with R. Crumb and sh- they have a very they have a shared sensibility uh, and so and so there are moments of, of there's
0: even kind of a joke about that in the film itself
2: yeah exactly where they, where he where he they were in a band together and he recommends that she not buy, <laughs> buy the album and which then, has
0: R. Crumb art as the, as the cover art Like it's just sort of Held up as this, here's everything that these guys represent. What do you think? And Bashemy's like, nah. <laughs> no,
2: it's no, not good. The other thing, too, and this is something that Zwygoff shares a little bit with Todd Salons, who's off in another direction, is that the idea of the lovable loser is not really something that Zwygoff seems all that comfortable with. I think he really likes to have losers. Mm. Um, that's and, fair. And that and is people, also people very who, Daniel people who really People who really, really don't fit in. For obvious reasons, who are unpleasant at, yeah. at people. I mean, I think there's a the, an off putting and not good. I mean, you know, you look at like the protagonist of Welcome to the Dollhouse. I mean, she's she's terrible. <laughs> just, she's, yeah. I mean, you, you feel for her, but she um, is not just awkward in a in a way that you connect with her. She also says and does terrible she 's the and, least and,
0: terrible thing in a really terrible world, though,
2: but you get what i 'm saying I mean you sure. get that sensibility and I think that that 's kind of the ballpark that why off is operating in here too, where he 's not going to make these characters kind of ingratiating geeks who you 're going to fall in love with he 's going to push back about against that
0: that is entirely fair and I mean, I have really read a fair bit of Daniel Kla and it, it is always surprising to me how deliberately off putting his characters are uh, visually and uh, conceptually the way they look and the way they act. But that said, this is just such a softened version of them, uh, in some ways that I I feel like ZweiGoff has to be kind of ameliorating the the degree to which we could loathe these characters. Hmm. Like they're not monsters. They're and in part that just that comes from their age. You know, they're young girls who are still kind of figuring the world out and deciding what they want to be. And they're deeply unhappy. And I think that's what becomes relatable about this. Maybe not the specific way they express it or the specific way they find relief from it, but their discontent with the world and trying to figure out what to do about it, I think is very, very relatable.
1: God, what a bunch of retards. God, I know. I thought the chipmunk face was never going to shut up. <laughs> I know. I liked her so much better when she was an alcoholic crack addict. Mm. She gets in one car wreck and all of a sudden she's almost perfect and everyone loves her if they gave me the right to perform life. What? What? These assholes are saying I have to go to summer school and take some stupid art class. Why? God. I didn't think that just because you get an F, you have to take the whole class over again. Loser.
2: So uh, I wanted to get into what ends up being the central relationship of, of the film. If you really could choose one uh, pairing or another, which is the relationship between Enid and Seymour, you know, what What do they see in each other, you know, and, and how does their friendship drift into this weird, you know, not right intimacy?
1: I think in a really interesting and organic way. I, I don't know. I don't have a really good answer for why she sleeps with him. It's like one of like the I don't want to call it a mystery of the movie because you see it going there. But I can't quite figure out exactly everything the character is thinking, which is good, you know. And, like, I think, like, she doesn't know why she does it. And, like, that's on purpose. But even after all this time, I don't know how I feel about them sleeping together and how that changes their dynamic at the end. I I think it does make it messier in a way that makes this film more interesting than if it had been more committed to the as as you put it the the ghost of Enid future uh, mm-hmm. characterization of of Seymour
0: to me it's a moment that has to happen i mean it's it's what resolves This sort of weird bubble that they're on, both of them, in very different directions. To me, it doesn't seem like a mystery at all. It seems like a very natural thing, given the place that she's in, where she feels like everybody has rejected her. And there's one person that won't reject her, but he's in the process of rejecting her for a woman that she assumes that he's sleeping with and that she's jealous of. She's drunk. She's lonely, she's depressed, and she's and reaching out. it's a destructive out. act. She, it is very much a destructive act. It's destructive of, of their friendship, if yeah. nothing else. But yeah. it's also, it's an attempt to destroy his relationship, I think, by kind of claiming him. But I think it's immediately clear to her that this isn't what she actually wants.
2: It's interesting from his angle, too. Yeah, I guess both of them really understand fully that it's a big, big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to keep this from happening... For a while, too, and then it just does. I mean, and then they just end up in a place where they're, you know, drinking and things happen. But he doesn't want to let her into the apartment. I think that he is genuinely sort of woken up by uh, the woman that he's dating that that this is an inappropriate relationship. And, you know, he probably should... You know, draw the line somewhere, and he doesn't. He isn't quite able to do that. I think. I think all that is very fascinating. It is it, the way it it happens is organic, and the way that the way it resolves itself is also makes a lot of sense. It makes sense that she's not there in the morning. It makes sense that there's a lot of ugly tension between them and it makes sense the way that things get resolved at the end as well that relationship is very satisfying to me
0: oh yeah for sure and clearly not satisfying to her but i mean he he resists it up to the point where he ha- it happens and then he's willing to just like burn down the rest of his life to get her to move in with him like he thinks that everything's been magically resolved and they're going to move in together and be a couple. Mm. That is such a bizarre thing to come out of. I like a sex act that we don't see. I'm not saying that we should see it, but it's just it's very interesting to me that whatever happened in that bed leaves her wide awake staring at the ceiling and just very clearly ready to like run away from him and never see him again. I mean, everything we see indicates that he's an immensely awkward dude, Mm -hmm. and I can only assume that that was some immensely awkward sex. But for him, it very clearly was, was validating, like validating of the relationship, validating of his crush on her. I mean, he immediately goes and dumps his other girlfriend. He immediately starts calling her over and over to find out when she wants to move in.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: I think also, like that impulse from him to continue this relationship is also kind of showing us what the happy ending resolution could be in order to make us like not want it. Does it mm, you, sure. you, you know what I'm saying? Like in Going back to what you were saying in the keynote, Scott, about this kind of like actively rejecting any neat and tidy conclusions about its characters or, or, or what they want. Like it is showing us that in order to reject it.
2: I did, I did not want to end this segment without talking about Ileana Douglas's <laughs> performance as an art teacher, <laughs> uh, which makes it very clear what Zzweoff and Klaus think about how art is evaluated and often falsely valued but I think it's worth talking about what do you what do you think of those scenes and uh, do you' know, did the sort of the broadside nature of it work for you
1: Oh, they're actually some of my favorite scenes in the movie. There's something about poorly like expressed artistic sentiment that is really like funny and cringe to me. Like we we might bring this up with Ladybird, but there's kind of an audition scene that I think trades on that same <laughs> that same sort of, of feeling. But I also just like I like how it rejects like a philosophy of art that seems very easy to accept because i mean these are you know off and clouds they're artists who make non-traditional art you know mm-hmm. like like not the kind of thing that would not necessarily be taught in a remedial art class although i guess that uh, opening film she shows oh my <laughs> God, <is> so great. <laughs> uh, the,
2: the, the acknowledgments are like one of my favorite things in the movie especially like doctor and missus whatever yeah. her name is oh so good yeah uh but go ahead
1: yeah i mean i, I I think they're funny. I don't hate them the way that some people seem to, but I'll open that up to you guys because you seem to maybe have different feelings on those scenes. Well, I love them. But oh, Oh, okay. no. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just totally misread the room. No, no, I'm no, like, no. I, I, don't I know, this I know. Is some people
2: did not, were not, did, you know, what's a the objection? That it, it was just too broad and too much of a cheap shot. Uh, but I think those those complaints ended up following with the next film that they made together, which is about that you know made right. that the subject of art, art School Confidential. Actually, yeah. that's a film I kind of I still kind of like, but uh,
0: kind of. But it, it does it to me. It always just felt redundant. It's like Ghost this. World mm-hmm. does the same thing so efficiently, you don't need an entire yeah. film for it.
2: Uh, though I, I will say another thing too is that for the, for years, one little bit of shorthand Keith and I ha- had about bad art was like oh, that's a tampon and a teacup. <laughs> <laughs> So that that part of Ghost World carried on for years after we saw it. Uh, I mean,
0: for me, what's interesting about the art sequences is just like it starts with that horrible film, that like horrible, laughable film. And you get to see Enid react to it with just this sort of, what the hell did I just watch? (laughs) And yet knowing that that is what her art teacher values, she still is so hungry for validation and approval. Like she has really no idea what she wants to express with her art. She has no idea how to express to the teacher what she wants to express with her art. She enjoys drawing things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But she also doesn't have any idea how to express that. And so watching her sort of fumble her way towards both creating the kind of art that her teacher will like and talking about it in the way that her teacher will like is really painful because it speaks to, again, the degree to which she. Acts out in iconoclastic ways but then is just crushed by people responding to her in non-validating ways and i (laughs) the only thing that i don't like about the art scenes is it's not that they're i think that they're too broad about art teachers or art classes or the definitely about the art world Mm. i think to some degrees they're too broad about making enid just seem like nakedly desperate for approval Hmm. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, I I didn't see that being that obvious at all. I mean, I guess the one bid for approval is this quote-unquote found art which is just basically (laughs) nothing that she did anything with and just turned in of of a coon chicken thing and of course because she's able to come up with some kind of explanation for why this is an important provocative work of art it's brilliant suddenly is brilliant even though she it it did not come from her hand at all
1: i I, yeah i just realized that uh, those scenes are so much about the the fallacy of artistic intent one of of your your (laughs) favorite things yeah
2: yeah Oh, my gosh. Tampon and teacup. Uh, so any uh, favorite moments or standout moments for you?
1: <laughs> I, know, I know what it's going to be.
0: So they're in the bar. The, the old guy has just played. Bushemi is over the moon. <laughs> Enid lures a woman to his table. She says something completely innoxous like, I just love blues. And he can't stop himself from yeah. well-actuallying yeah. her. And what I love about that is is you can see on his face that he doesn't want to be saying the words that he's saying. And he can't <laughs> stop himself. Yeah. He can't keep – well – actually technically um the music that he was playing was more of a ragtime and it's like you can see her turning off you can see him squirming but he still he just he goes on and on and on and on into like worse and worse vocabulary as he Mm -hmm. continues to mansplain to her what Ragtime is, in a way that he knows she's not interested in, and he's not interested in, and it just uh, the 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 uncomfortableness and awkwardness of the character in that moment is so beautiful. I I am a huge fan of Bashami's work here. Oh, I'm I, going to say
2: too, though. I, I, you know, I would uh, you really think it's I think it's just more helpless pedantry. He just can't. He,
1: he yeah. He, no, he no. Like can't. you can you can see the moment where he's like, <laughs> should I? Should I? Uh, I can't not. I'm going to do not. it. Why am I doing it? I want to uh. not. <laughs> What is my mouth saying right now, and why is it saying that? That's not what I thought you were going to say, Tasha, only because you mentioned something earlier, uh, which is the shirtless nunchucks guy. Shirtless nunchucks guy. America, (laughs) baby. Freedom of speech. Doug. Oh, my gosh, Doug.
0: One of the things that stands out for me is, is his horrible... His horrible shirtlessness, I guess. Just his uh, – the the very clear burn lines around what was obviously a sleeveless undershirt that he was wearing at some point. He was he wearing his outside? And his fish belly white perfect abs. Uh, just everything about that character visually cracks me up.
1: Oh, and the horrible mustache. I I don't have a moment to highlight so much as like a joke. Not even a joke, just an observation that like puts me on the floor every time, which is he just ordered a giant glass of milk <laughs> like, no, milkshake. Milk mm. I don't know why, but just the idea of being horrified at a grown man drinking a giant glass of milk is very funny to me.
0: <laughs> that is pretty funny. There's also the the entire sequence in the adult bookstore. Oh. Or video oh, store, God, or whatever you
1: want to call it. So great. God, why did I forget about that? Where she's
0: charging around. Like, her. her the first thing she says <laughs> when
1: she gets in here is, Oh my God, look at all these creeps. <laughs> and that is taken almost beat for beat from the comic, except that in the comic, she is with Josh.
2: Oh. oh and, the, yeah. and, the, and just the. The person that they focus on when she says that it's <laughs> just the creepiest guy they could possibly have found. Mm-hmm. That is a great sequence,
0: and it culminates in that terrific shot of her with the Bat Girl yeah. mask, whatever it is you want to call it. It's not Catwoman. It's not yeah. quite Catwoman. It's not yeah. quite Bat Girl. It's not quite a like a fetish latex yeah. mask. It's it's a superhero. It's again, it's taken right from hoody. directly from the comic.
2: I have a couple of moments. I mean, one, I, I love the opening. I think the opening is so infectious and and. Wonderful and such a great choice, as I said in the in the keynote to, to open the movie with that. It uh, was very smart. The other thing that really st- sticks with me is this movie has my favorite fart joke in <laughs> yes. all of cinema. It's, it's, just, it's an existential fart joke, you know what I mean? It's like, this is just, this is who he is living with. This is his situation. This is a guy who... In the middle of a, a thought is just gonna let one go and that's just that's that that's the way things are that's where where his life is at and i just thought like the timing of it was so perfect and unexpected and just the way it's just well dropped i would say Well, and, in, and, uh... and
1: and buscemi's delivery of like yeah well thanks for cheering me up <laughs> like the defeated i know that's a
2: great character that's a great list, little character in the movie his roommate is terrific yeah. This movie's got lots. This movie is all about standout moments, so uh, I'm sure our listeners might have a few as well. And if you want to share those with us, um, then please uh, email us or, or leave us a voicemail. Speaking of feedback, uh, we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes. We continue to get flooded with great messages on our Blade Runner show. So many messages. (laughs) Uh, Many of which have been posted. They're very long. Uh, They've been posted to our Facebook page, a lot of them. But this week, I thought we'd start by going back to reaction to our Mother Exterminating Angel pairing. Genevieve, want to read this excerpt
1: for us? Sure. Andy Decker from Chicago writes... I wanted to respond to your discussion of Aronofsky's Mother, in particular, the discussion of how American Christians would respond to its religious themes. I'm a practicing Christian with an American evangelical background who studied Bible and theology in college, so I thought I'd offer up my perspective on the film. My experience with Mother was constantly evolving during my first viewing as I tried to figure it out. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I didn't recognize the film's overtly biblical themes until the, spoiler alert, baby was ripped to pieces and people started eating it, and the threads prior to that started becoming clear to me as I thought about the film after finished. Up to that point, I'd read it first as a study on marriage, then as a commentary on the creative process and the relationship between artists and their art. One of the things I love about this film is that I don't feel like either of those readings are invalid. I was laughing to myself listening to the podcast and hearing everyone give their interpretations of the film that were wildly different, but each of them rang true. It's quite a feat for a film to lend itself to multiple themes, but to do so in such a way that's profound and striking on all accounts through metaphors bearing double, triple, quadruple meanings is brilliant. As for the film's biblical elements, I found them particularly fascinating, and neither I nor my friends were offended by Aronofsky's unflattering presentation of God. I really didn't take it as an attack on my religious beliefs, and, even if it was, I'm more eager to hear what people outside of the Christian circles are saying than to just argue and get angry with them. Aronofsky's work regarding biblical themes is always fascinating, given his fascination and respect for the material mixing in with his seeming disdain and pessimistic attitudes toward humanity in general. As such, I found that Mother on the surface raises an indictment of both God and man for their abuse of the earth. And the perspective coming from the earth itself was particularly sobering, helping me to view the effects of my sin and the collective sin of the human race in a fresher, more visceral light. It cut deep. This is a
0: really fascinating perspective, and I'm really glad that Andy wrote in. Um, it is just, this is just a really like cogent thought-through response. And I think it's really interesting to hear about that Christian perspective. I also think it's really interesting that he, like me, uh, didn't see it like sure. despite the fact that it 's something that his his life is embedded in he he missed it uh, until a certain point i I did as well for reasons we discussed on that podcast but I agree that it 's uh it 's sitting with me better and better like i it impresses me more and more the degree to which all of these different metaphors do work and are it, not just because the uh, subject matter is broad enough to support multiple readings, but because it's so specific in a way that can support multiple readings.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, and I'm I'm always happy to see people who are religious have an open mind about how things are represented and discussed, and you know, and, and are able to kind of engage in an argument rather than shut it down because I, um, I think these films are resonant. I mean, not only is it resonant in the sense that the destructive element of humanity and, and what we do to the, the earth and what we do to God's creations, but Aronofsky in this film and in Noah as well also has a really good feel for what is transcendent and, and wondrous too about creation and about God. So so all, all these elements are in place. And just, again, yeah, being able to to read the film on so many different levels and having all those levels be perfectly valid uh, and supportable. It's great. I don't, is there a film this year that's more fun to talk about than Mother? I'm not <laughs> sure that there is. Especially
0: uh, if you get that exclamation point in there. I, I'm curious whether you guys have ever done any delving into the world of Christian film analysis podcasts. I actually met somebody in Chicago relatively recently who's deep into, uh, like 140 episodes, I want to say, into uh, a podcast called Seeing and Believing um, that's specifically a Christian perspective, two person film podcast. And we got to talk talking about a ghost story which he loved the film um, just felt really really strongly about it and I I was like taking that film from a Christian perspective I would think would be very challenging but I wouldn't listen to the episode it was really thought through yeah. and my husband Bob is is very much addicted to a Christian film analysis podcast called More Than One Lesson which again breaks down films like from a, a Christian and religious perspective but it's really compatible with the kind of breakdowns that we do they come at films from this very like thought through cinephile analysis kind of perspective but they also talk about sort of what the metaphor is. and like what religion brings to the table and uh the the guy from seeing and believing one of the things he talked about is how like so much online christian perspective on films seems to come from a like let's list off the all of the swear words all of the ways that you know you should be offended by this film but uh the christian podcasts that i've listened to that uh, have taken a much deeper analysis and I, i find it really interesting
2: and what were the names of those two
0: podcasts again? Seeing and Believing and More Than One Lesson.
2: And maybe something to check out. On to another piece of feedback. Our discussion of The Graduate happened to coincide with a scandal in the film industry. And a reader offers a provocative thought on that. Tasha.
0: Paul Rippey writes, I listened to your review of The Graduate this morning and enjoyed it in part because I'd just rewatched the movie a couple of months ago on a flight. It occurred to me while I was listening to your review that there were similarities among Mrs. Robinson, Harvey Weinstein, and why not include him also, Kevin Spacey. All used age and power to extract sex from much younger people. All acted like no means yes. All were apparently oblivious to the harm they were doing to the other parties. I note, simply note, that we treat men aggressors very differently from women aggressors. Even going so far as to put Mrs. Robinson in, what you rightly point out is basically a comedy. No one would dare try to make a comedy about Harvey Weinstein's relations with the women he assaulted, and if someone tried, it would be very difficult to make that funny. Imagine the following Mr. Weinstein, may I ask you a question? Young woman actor candidate looks at him. Mr. Weinstein, what do you think of me? Young woman actor candidate, startled. What do you mean? Mr. Weinstein, coy. Everyone in Hollywood knows me. You must have formed some opinion. Young woman actor candidate. Well, I've always thought that you were a very nice person. Most of us would find that script not only not funny, but creepy. So why do we find The Graduate inoffensive at the same time that it's so difficult to imagine a comedy based on Harvey Weinstein's actions? If you decide to address that question, I'd urge you to make it harder for yourself by avoiding taking refuge behind the simple frequency of male-female aggression and the relative rarity of female-male aggression, and body-shaming or appearance-shaming Weinstein. I'd love to hear what you think about this.
2: I don't know. I mean, my mind isn't necessarily blown about this reversal. I never feel like mrs robinson is any kind of like a threatening presence in the film at, at all that her aggression doesn't seem i mean i guess it's, it makes him uncomfortable at best but i, I just don't think it's a different feeling than she
1: doesn't have the power over him that these stories we're hearing in hollywood are not about sex they're about power And about how those with power exerted over those with less power than them. And I'm not sure that the power differential between Mrs. Robinson and Benjamin Braddock is... The same sort of power differential we're talking about with these Hollywood scandals.
0: I mean, I'm sure it's not. Yeah. Uh, Harvey Weinstein openly threatened the careers of women who wouldn't sleep with him. Mm-hmm. And he openly promised to boost the careers of women who would sleep with him. All Mrs. Robinson is offering him really is sex. She is threatening to him in that he's a kind of a hapless dude who is who seems threatened by the world and by sex and she threatens his relationship with elaine but she doesn't have the power to destroy him and that is a very real scenario that the women who have talked about harvey Weinstein were facing not to mention the fact that he's a big dude who reportedly held some of them down and physically assaulted them
2: she is not standing between him and a career in plastics
0: (laughs) I think one thing that is also really important to keep in mind here is that The Graduate is kind of a dry comedy, kind of a wry comedy, but the sex scenes are not themselves comic. And that seduction, quote unquote, scene is not necessarily comic except maybe in Braddock's reaction to some degree. It's pretty
2: funny. I mean, are you trying to seduce me? That sort of thing. That's pretty good.
0: But his, I mean, his reaction to her naked body, like his complete confusion (laughs) in response to it. Yeah. That's a little funny, but it, is a little funny in part because of the genders involved and because of the era that this happened in. I mean, she is a woman in an era where women didn't necessarily have that much power over men. And that's part of the
1: reversal is like making it humorous because it's an unlikely thing. The power she does have that she does exert at the end of the movie is to change the story into implying that he assaulted her, you know, like that is the story that she tells Elaine and you know that I think we are led to believe she she probably tells other people like there is an element of her smearing Benjamin when he goes through with telling Elaine. But by that time she is fully in villain territory like we talked uh, in that podcast about how that character shifts strongly to being characterized as a villain in the end of the movie and that's when that happens
0: there's also a degree to which this is it's comedic because i mean the the writer doesn't want us to take refuge behind the frequency of one or the over the other but it's sort of a comedic scenario because it's kind of a rarity Mm -hmm. whereas all of the women that harvey weinstein assaulted part of the reason that that was able to happen the the thing that we hear over and over and people talking about it was they didn't know what to do because either they hadn't encountered it and didn't know it was wrong or had encountered a lot and knew that they didn't have a good way out of it.
2: Yeah, so, well, you floated the theory uh-huh. and uh, that's, that was our response. Uh, <laughs> as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion.
0: Yeah, we, we posted that last one on Facebook and it's gotten some discussion, <laughs> some, some very intelligent discussion, I would say.
2: That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Greta Gerwig's widely acclaimed debut feature, Lady Bird, and what its vision of the early aughts senioritis has in common with Ghost World. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be rocking out to the authentic Cajun sounds of Blueshammer. We'll see you next time.
0: Oh, love
2: the devil i would rather woman,
1: man
2: be the devil i be that woman, man